with you. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to begin at verse 8 there today. While you're turning there, i got to tell you about something I heard this week. And I struggled with a couple of these things because I've heard a couple of things this week. And I had one written down, but I think I'm going to add lib. I'm going to add hoc because of something that happened yesterday and last week or so. Um, we went out last night to a Bethlehem walk where all of the fires were at and it took you through the town and it took you through Roman soldiers. And I heard uh, one little one talking and saying, I want to go see the baby Jesus and his mother Mary and Moses, but I don't want to get on that ship that he built. (laughs) So kids say the darndest things, don't they? You know, another time I, I had a brother tell me about kids saying the darndest things on Art Linkletter. And had a little boy that come up, and boy, he was dressed to the T. I mean, he had a big smile on his face, and he wanted to talk about it. He said, what do you have for me today? And he says, I want to talk about Jesus raising. And he goes, really? He said, yes. He says, what do you know about that? He said, well, Jesus was put into the tomb, and the stone was rolled away, and he arose again. And Art Linkletter asked him, said, well, then what happened? And he said, he saw his shadow, and there was so many more weeks, six more weeks of winter. <laughs> so, we got a little work to do on our youngins, but that's what we want to do. We want to train them up right, don't we? I mean, at least they're getting something. And uh, I just appreciate that. Uh, now, for today's lesson, if you're there in uh, Revelation chapter 2, let's read from 8 to 11 together. And as we do, there's, there's an outline that goes to each one of these lessons. There's the church that the Lord is speaking to. There's the symbolic title that he lays upon himself from chapter 1 of, of who it is that's speaking to him. And it kind of gives you a mindset of what this letter is going to be about. Then he's going to give them a, a commendation and then a concern usually and an exhortation and then a promise to those who overcome And then he usually has a closing. But with that in mind, starting in verse 8, it says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, the one who was dead and has come to life. And I know your works, and I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, and they are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of the things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. First of all, the recipient of this letter. And by the way, it's my fault on the slides like great is thy faithfulness. It looks good on the computer in black, but white showed up better. And I tried to uh, remodel it and it didn't work. So it's still a work in progress. But we're able to see these verses here. And the church at Smyrna. Now on the map that we're going to have. These letters to the seven churches, you can see that it's kind of like a Pony Express route that we had in the Old West. 
Paul was on that island of Patmos there. And he writes these letters to the seven churches and it goes to that first harbor at Ephesus. And then this second letter goes straight up about 40 miles to Smyrna. And then it's going to go up again to Pergamos and Thyatira and on down. And it's a Pony Express. So this is the order that the letters was written. And it's actually the order in which they're going to be delivered as well. And the background of this time period is that Domitian is the emperor. Rome is in charge. And Rome is building the crossroads all the way from Rome through This is Turkey today, Asia Minor it's called in the Bible, and the roads would go all the way over through Jerusalem and trying to get to India so that there was a trade route that would go on. But Rome was in charge. They liked emperor worship, and they didn't want any worship of anyone else like Jesus Christ. And we're going to learn that it reached a fever pitch in Smyrna. Smyrna is one of the most persecuted of the churches because a lot of the relatives and a lot of the genealogy from the Roman people came from this town. So they had a real affinity with Rome, more so than a lot of the other churches. So this emperor worship was very strong here and it came down upon the Christians very strong as well. And we learn from this epistle and from history a very important point. And that is that when persecution hits the church, when it really reaches down and starts hitting you hard, then what you find is a purged church, a pure church that moves forward in purity. And you say, why? Because if your faith does not mean much to you, then why are you going to stay and be persecuted? If If you have to be faithful even until death and your faith isn't real, you're not going to stay. So this church is facing heavy persecution. All of the people whose faith wasn't deep have run off and went ahead and paid their homage to Caesar. And what you have is a small group who is strong, courageous, and their faith is is very evident. So, in this one, this is one of only two churches that Jesus writes his epistles to out of the seven that doesn't have a condemnation. He doesn't have to tell them about what they lack and what they're not doing and that you need to change. This is one of the two where he says, that's all been cleared out. Now, I have to tell you I am the first and the last. Why? Because I am he who was dead and has arose again, because some of you are going to be facing the same type of challenge unto death that I did. And you need me as the example. And that's why he writes that as his who is writing this lesson. It's not one with the sharp two-edged sword protruding out of his mouth. It's not one with the laser eyes. But in compassion, he's saying, I am the one who also faced death, and I arose again. And if you trust in me, the same will happen to you. And he's going to end that with, you will not have to face the second death. And so we are exhorted that through the suffering, through the trials and the tribulation, it brings about a purity of heart and a devotion of worship that is pure. And 
as verse 4 of this chapter gave the synopsis about the church at Ephesus in that you have left your first love, verse 10 is our synopsis for the church here at Smyrna, and that was the exhortation of be faithful unto death, and I will give you, and here's your promise. We like standing on the promises of God, don't we? We've been talking about these for the last year. Here is a promise from God who does not lie. Actually, Jesus Christ to His church and His promise is, if you will be faithful, even if it costs you your life, I will give you the crown of life. You will have life like no other. This life is temporary. It's not important. But if you will be faithful, I have a promise for you. I have a crown of life for you. We may end up facing persecution. It says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And things can get tough all over right now. You see all the things that's happening in the Middle East. You see all the turmoil even in our country. You see that our president recognized Jerusalem as capital and that now that world over there is in turmoil. We don't know what's going to end up happening. But one thing I do know of, the world was in turmoil, like was talked about, Bobby talked about with Jesus coming into the world at that time. It's always going to be in turmoil because it's a fallen world and we're human beings and things are happening. But the thing of it is, as we face that, are we going to remain faithful? This church at Smyrna is going to be our example. If those trials, if crisis comes, if there is all-out war, this is our example of how to handle that in our life. Now, there is nothing else in the Scripture at all about Smyrna except for these four verses that we read, 8 through 11. There's no other thing. Last week we talked about Ephesus and we went back to Acts and looked at chapter 18 and 19 and 20 and there was a lot of stuff in there about Ephesus. This is it on Smyrna. This is all we know. It's not mentioned anywhere else. So one thing that we can probably assume, we found out last week that it says that for the three years Paul was at Ephesus, the word of God did what? It spread, didn't it? It growed. It spread throughout all of Asia Minor. So we can imagine that probably what happened was that from Ephesus, these other churches were formed from the zeal of the word of God they had. And life for this church was dangerous. It was dangerous for a number of reasons, and we mentioned the emperor worship that was going on there. If you failed to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord, then you were in trouble. You couldn't buy and sell in the marketplace without that certificate. You could be turned in as a traitor to the state and lose your life. They had that kind of a history with Rome. So much so that they document here in particular the amount of executions that Christians faced who failed to bow the knee to Caesar and proclaim him as God. And if you can see this slide, it's an ancient carving of what would happen in those times. Once a year, it was required of the citizenry to acknowledge that the Caesar is a god. And they had a temple there for Caesar worship. It was called Dia Rome, that the worship of, of Rome. And they had an altar that had a small 
box with heated coals upon it. And there was another box, and here it shows a person holding that, but there was another box that had incense, kind of like your potpourri of today. But it had these incense. And once a year, it was required for you to go up, grab a pinch of that incense, walk over to the hot coals, drop it on it, and as the incense aroma of that went up, then you would just say, Caesar is Lord. They would stamp your certificate, and now you could go throughout the year to buy and sell again because you had acknowledged it. Their religion didn't say you have to say he's the only God. He can be one among many, but you just have to recognize him as that. The Christians couldn't do that. The true ones said, we serve one Lord... I cannot acknowledge anyone else as my Lord and as a God. And for that, they had no certificate. So now, you couldn't buy, you couldn't sell, you couldn't set up. If you tried to and you were questioned to show your certificate and you don't have one and you say, my affinity is not with Rome, but it's with Jesus Christ, you could be a traitor of the state. If it was a bad day, they could kill you. So now you begin to see why in verse 9 of our text that it says, I know your works, Jesus says. I know your tribulation. I know the trials that you're going through. And then he says, and your poverty. And then he puts a parenthesis to them. But you are rich. You are rich. Because in the eyes of the world, you're having troubles, you're having trials, and you are in poverty. And that word there for poverty is the most extreme word that there was for poverty. It meant that you had no way on your own account to be able to do anything. You couldn't provide for yourself. You couldn't take care of yourself. So this is the most extreme word. So these Christians face that kind of poverty. But Jesus reminds them. But you are rich. Why? Because he sees things with spiritual eyes. And with those spiritual eyes, he says, This world is temporary. You have laid up treasures in heaven by recognizing me as your God and not anyone else. And I am laying these things up for you. And you are very rich. And don't you forget about that. So that's kind of the meaning behind all of this exhortation and what's going on with them. And then another interesting nugget of truth about Smyrna. And I really like this. Smyrna is actually the word for Myrrh. And as you say Smyrna, it's got an S and a feminine ah on the end of it to make it Smyrna for the city. But it's actually the city of myrrh. The, the essential oil type thing that goes throughout the Bible. So now there's a word play that's going on in here. And if you study the word of God, you will find myrrh throughout it, it, the scriptures being used. It was first used, this exact word, in Exodus chapter 30 and verse 23 to represent sanctification, to represent holiness. When God instructed Moses and the children of Israel to take and put together a tabernacle, all of the articles had to be anointed with this oil that was going to be used for that. And then the priest... Aaron, as the high priest, had a golden band that went around his head that said, Holy unto God on it. And it was anointed. And then the priests were anointed because with this oil, 
It represented sanctification. It represented you being set apart from what is common into something that is holy and now of service to God and not what is common. The next time we find it being used is in Esther chapter 2 and verse 12. And she is a part of the king's um, harem for a lack of a better word. And what the king would do, they had to come in and for six months, they had to bathe and then be lotioned with oil of myrrh for six months. For, for purity, for beauty, for the skin softness, for the scent that it would, would put right inside of you. And so now you start to see how this is evolving from being holy unto God to separating yourself. Now these ladies were being separated from the common people that were out in the town into his service and they were being separated by this oil of myrrh and it made them also beautiful and a sweet smell to them. And then as you move along in Psalm 45 and in the Song of Solomon, myrrh is used as a perfume. It's used as the special scent between lovers many times in Song of Solomon when they talk about, oh, my love, and I smell the aroma of the myrrh that is upon them. So this word also is signifying an intense love for one another. So as we get to the New Testament then, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 2, the wise men came and brought gold, frankincense, and what? Myrrh. This same thing that we're talking about, this city is representing. They brought to him that. In chapter 15 of Mark, as Jesus is hanging upon the cross, they try to give him wine that is mingled with myrrh to drink. And at that point, he refused it. And then, in John 19, as Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Christ... And he allows them to take it down. Nicodemus, who had came to Jesus by night in John 3, is now exposed as a believer. He is finally... When Jesus talked to him that day, he said, When you see the Son of Man lifted up, then you will know that I am He. And when Jesus was lifted up on that cross, it melted the heart of Nicodemus. And he got 100 pounds of aloe and myrrh and the fragments of cloth, and he wrapped that body of Jesus in the aloe and the myrrh. So now we see how this has went from Old Testament to New to be used as holy, sanctifying, setting apart, love, beauty, and then in death as the final thing that makes you also holy unto God and covers up all of that, and turns it into something sweet. And so I think that it's very, um, what's the proper word? I think that it was on purpose that this city was named Smyrna. Because the trouble that they went through, the trial and tribulation, they were to God, Smyrna, myrrh, the essential oils that set, they are separated, they are holy, they are beautiful. They are in love with God. And that even unto death, that is an incense. We talked, oh, several weeks ago about prayer. And in prayer, we showed how that 
it stops the throne room of God and it's mingled with incense. These Smyrna Christians were that in the demonstration of their life. Their life was like prayer and incense going up to God in that sweetness and light of what it was. So this little church is a persecuted church. Another thing about this uh, myrrh and this tree. You see the tree up there. To be able to collect myrrh, the tree has to be injured. It has to be hurt. Have you seen a pine tree and when you break off a branch, the sap comes out of it? That's what the myrrh tree does. It only gives forth this when it bleeds. And so, it has to be cut and that sticky resin comes out and it comes into little nuggets and then they distill that down into this oil. Wikipedia describes it like this. When a tree's wound penetrates past the bark into the sapwood, the tree bleeds a resin. And that resin is a myrrh gum which people harvest the myrrh from when they wound the trees repeatedly to bleed them of the gum. And that myrrh gum is waxy and it comes out and it coagulates quickly and they process it then. So that represents this church. Repeatedly wounded. A group of believers who is repeatedly put under persecution, trial, trouble, bled, but that comes forth and produces a resin of beauty. God permitted Satan to crush them so as to yield this sweetness up to God. And Jesus said, I know. I realize. Don't ever think that I don't know what you're going through in life. But I promise you, if it's for me and for my cause, I am there with you and I will give unto you a crown of life because of your faithfulness and your perseverance in the faith. So it's ironic how that Smyrna actually represents this spiritually when at times physically it literally stunk. Because in Smyrna, even though it was a beautiful city, it matched Ephesus in its beauty. But the architects, when they built it, forgot to put in drains. So there were no drains in the city and there's no way to wash out or have a a way to rid the waste. So when it would rain, the streets would be a sewage plant and it would stink. So it's funny how that this city, who physically at times would stink beyond compare to God, was a beautiful odor of their sacrifice and their perseverance and their sanctity to him. And then we, we think about persecution. I don't know what kind of rough patch you might be hitting. You might have trials in, in life. It might be at work. It might be in our worship. It might be in our home life. It might be with friends. It might be with our extracurricular activities like bowling or hunting partners or whatever it is. But sometimes it's tough Being a Christian, isn't it? When I taught in prison, I asked those men, what is the hardest thing that you have to face in prison? And I thought the answer would come back something like separation from family, my loss of freedom, 
losing everything that I had. Surprisingly, what they came back with is being a Christian. Being a Christian in prison is the hardest thing. It's like, why is that the hardest? Well, think about it. You know, our text in verse 9 here talks about how the Jews were a synagogue of Satan and how that the devil is going to imprison you. Next uh, church that we're going to read of in Pergamos says in verse 13 that you actually live where Satan dwells. Well, where would you think in America that the synagogue of Satan would be? A prison. All of his people are there. You know, some have changed. But for the most part, a lot of them are there because of what they've done. And they are that. And the correctional officers as well. And they said, being a Christian in this kind of environment, you're getting tested, you're getting pushed, you're getting prod every day because they want to see a rise out of you. They want to see you pop and snap. And when they do, they're going to come back on you and say, Whoa, ho, thought you was a Christian. Oh, listen to the mouth on you right now. I bet that made Jesus pretty happy, didn't it, Christian boy? And they would be so derogatory to him. And if it was a correctional officer who prodded you and you happened to pop on him, guess what? I'm writing you up, Mr. Christian. You're going to lose all them time cuts that you've just been taking your classes for and you will get your sentence increased. They love to do that because they dwell where Satan lives. And it's the toughest thing was to be a Christian. And we never know when that might happen to us in society as well as government changes. Just like it happened to the church at Smyrna here. And they will be our example then. Whenever you face trial and tribulation in life of what to do. You know Jesus is going to tell them in verse 10. Don't fear any of the things that's going to happen to you. What you're going to suffer. Indeed, the devil is himself going to throw you in prison. But you're going to be tested. And you're going to be tried for ten days. Be faithful even unto death. And I will give you a crown of life. And every word of the Bible is true. You will never find an error in that. And Jesus Christ knew what was going on. And when he spoke these words, he had people in mind, people who were going to suffer these things. And to illustrate that deep hatred that went on between those of the synagogue of Satan and those of the emperor worshipers, I want to talk about one of those folks that is verified to us in history of what actually happened. Let me tell you what happened to the minister at Smyrna. The minister at Smyrna was a man by the name of Polycarp. Church historians will note that Polycarp was a disciple of John himself. So this is a man who grew up in his formative years under the guidance of the Apostle John, who is the penman for Jesus Christ for the book of Revelation. He is one of his students. He actually installed him over at Smyrna and told him to go and put him in as elder and as minister to that church. And this is probably one of the people that Jesus had in mind when he said, be faithful unto death. Let me read to you what we know about Polycarp then from this. The Jews, those folks that was just described as the synagogue of Satan, joined with the heathens of the seizure worship. And they wanted to clamor for Christians and especially their leader, Polycarp, to be put to death. 
They wanted him cast to the lions or burned at the stake. They really preferred the burning at the stake because they wanted to singe till nothing was left so that they couldn't even place a monument up for him. So, as they did, there was uh, the games being taken place. The city was crowded. People were excited. And the chants started going up. Away with the atheists. Away with Polycarp. Put Polycarp to death. So they searched for him. But he had already, he could have ran. He was 86 years old though. And as they searched for him, he told his disciples, I've had a dream to where my pillow caught on fire and I was burned. And so I feel that I am going to be burned alive. And so when they came, a little girl under the torture, they started torturing people who may know of his whereabouts. And one of the little girls was tortured. And she gave up under pressure where he was at. So the soldiers went. They found Polycarp. They grabbed a hold of him and took him. As they were going to the city, he was such a renowned man and loved. And he was a gentle person. Even the officer of the Roman army didn't want him to die. And he said, wouldn't it be easy for you just for a moment to put the pinch of incense on there, nod like Caesar's your God and walk away and not have to face death? I'm humbled to what he said. He said, no, I am going there. And then he said, what harm is it to say that? Polycarp said, only Jesus Christ is my Lord and Master. I will not mention anyone else. So now, they bring him into one of the big arenas like we saw last week, where they're all gathered together and they're all screaming. And they bring Polycarp before the pro-council of the city and it got quiet. And he said, All you have to do is to denounce this Jesus Christ and say that Caesar is Lord and your life will be spared. And Polycarp stood there and looked at that audience and he looked at that proconsul, and he said, Eighty and six years have I served Jesus Christ. He has done me no wrong. So how can I now blaspheme my king that saved me? The proconsul again then threatened him and said, Do you not know that I have the authority to burn you in this bonfire that they are gathering the wood for? To which Polycarp replied, You try to threaten me with a fire that burns for a short time and is quenched? You do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come in everlasting punishment. So then, why are you waiting? Come and do what you must do. Polycarp remained unmoved. The crowds came flocking with their sticks and their wood and started piling them up around him. The Jews, all, they're so religious. You know, the Sabbath, remember it. They followed Jesus everywhere saying, you healed on the Sabbath. Your disciples picked grain on the Sabbath. Well, guess what? This was a Sabbath day. And guess what they did? Carried their burdens of wood to be placed here and broke their own law so that they could have this one that they hated that represented Christ here in Smyrna. And they broke their law and piled the wood up in front of them. And then... To the stake, they were getting ready to nail Polycarp to it. And he said, you don't have to do that. Leave me as I am. 
For the one who gives me the power to remain in these flames will also give me the power to endure and remain unmoved and you don't have to tack me to that tree. I will stay right here. So they left him loose and he stood there in the middle of the flames as they lit it and as he died without anything binding him but he remained faithful unto death to his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I have to tell you, boy, I'm struggling right now. This week, as, as I was led to put this together by the Spirit, and as I examined my life, there were a lot of tears about how unworthy I am to be given even a portion of the grace And the mercy and the love to stand here and to even talk to you guys about the word of God. When you see what other great men of God have had to persecute and endure through. And I again thanked him for allowing me to be used even as unworthy as I am. Well as our worship team comes on back up. Better get off of that before we're all crying. We're beginning to see the reality though. Of the world that these Christians lived in. And what was going on as Jesus Christ wrote this epistle to them. Real people. Real churches. Real love for a Savior and a Savior's love back to them. Last week we saw from Ephesus that Jesus wants to be our first love. This week we're seeing in Smyrna what real love looks like. Faithfulness even unto death to get that crown of life. And you say, how does that apply to my walk that I have? We, well, this is going to be our, our example of what he wants. That type of love and devotion even under stress and under against all odds. Just to be faithful to him. Jesus died. There's been martyrs throughout history. But you know what? Their death only made those around them stronger because of their faith. Our faithfulness in our walk of life will only make those who are looking to us as examples stronger as well. I hope that you will be a strong example. That you, by the way you love and the way you show your determination for Christ, that He is your Lord and God and Savior and Master, that you will be able to strengthen those also who are looking to you. Because people do. They look to you and if you fail, we can be forgiven. But the impact that that might have on some folks. So please remain faithful in the rough patches wherever it is and what you're going through in life. Because it's tough. And if you're proclaiming Jesus Christ like they did in Ephesus and like they did in Smyrna. I guarantee you, this isn't your best life now. You're going through some problems because all who do that will face trials. Jesus said in his ministry, Don't fear those who can kill this body. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in that everlasting fire. Jesus then says to these Christians who are faced with that, If you are faithful even unto death, I will give you a crown of life. 
And not only that, he says, you will not be hurt by hell and its fires, which is called the second death in verse 11 there of our thing. So rest assured, folks, that your steadfastness through everything is Saul by Jesus. He knows and he has these rewards waiting for you as a promise if you will endure and love him and allow him to be your first love. Invite everyone you can next week because next week we were introduced today by Jesus himself about the synagogue of Satan and the devil's going to cast you in prison. So next week we're going to study about our adversary we're going to talk about who and what he is, how was he created, and everything about him. Not everything, because that's going to take us several lessons, but we're only going to do one to introduce it next week about who and what is our adversary. But I'm going to stop there because the next week's Christmas Eve, and we've got to talk about Jesus then. So, but next week we will see our adversary. Invite folks. But as you do, bring a hard hat with you and bring your body armor. Because you don't talk about him and you don't face something. So be prepared. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. The pain and suffering that he endured. The example he left. And then great disciples of yours throughout history. Like the one at Smyrna that you wrote to and and told him, be faithful unto death. And we saw that. Father, help us. There was, one, there was one man who adamantly fell at your feet when you told him about faith, and he said, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. We all struggle through life at times with trial and tribulation and suffering, and we want to believe so, so much, but sometimes we struggle and we say, help me with what I'm lacking. And Father, if there's anyone here today who needs you and needs your strength and needs more. We pray that you will be with them and be a hedge of protection around them and show them, just like in this letter to Smyrna, how much you love them. And we praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.